women have been excluded from the advancement of medicine overall. Until 1993, they weren't included in any research. And even until 2016, that the biomedical research included primarily male animals. So think about that. So if that means women do not receive treatments, diagnosis, and care that they deserve simply because of lack of information. Hi, folks. I'm Connor Gaughan, and welcome to Consensus in Conversation, a podcast where we're talking to the innovators, entrepreneurs, and thought leaders who are committed to building successful businesses that also help us build a better world. On this show, we've spent 50-plus episodes now discussing sustainability with all kinds of folks across business, impact, and the nonprofit spaces. But it suddenly occurred to me that we've never actually quite defined what we mean by sustainability. Of course, we all know what the word generally means, but I often have a fairly inclusive framework when it comes to my use for the term. And so to really evaluate the impact potential of a business or a policy, it helps to establish a specific technical definition to measure against. So let's take a second to do that. One of the commonly recognized definitions is from the UN's 1987 Commission on the Environment and Development, which defines sustainability as, quote, meeting the needs of the present without compromising the ability of the future generations to meet their own needs. Now, the real reason I wanted to bring this up is that I was recently reading an awesome book on the data of sustainability, Not the End of the World, by Hannah Ritchie. Big recommendation for anyone interested in the topics we cover. And she stressed the importance of remembering that there's actually two parts to the definition. Those of us who are invested in the impact space tend to focus on the second half, the without compromising future generations part. Things like generating energy without the extractive legacy of fossil fuels, or capturing carbon through regenerative ag, or supporting our economy without creating excessive waste, all frequent topics of this show. All of that is, of course, extremely important. But it's the other component of the definition, the meeting the needs of the present part, that I want to talk about today. Because that part is also crucial, and often gets overlooked. I think it's easy to focus on innovative problem-solving for the future, but perhaps that comes at a cost. Namely, losing sight of the fact that there are many people across the world right now whose lives are unsustainable because they lack access to resources that we take for granted. And that goes beyond food security or access to electricity in the developing world, which are real and challenging concerns. But there are also glaring cases much closer to home. And so for this week's conversation, we're switching things up a bit from environmental sustainability to focus on a company that's taking on a present need in human sustainability, addressing the data gap in women's healthcare. As I've come to discover, that data gap is truly stunning. A recent study revealed that 70% of medical residency training programs completely exclude fertility issues from their core curriculum, and the results can be tragic. Another study found that four out of every five women in America suffering from a female-specific medical condition will go undiagnosed, despite the fact that women are almost 20% more likely to have recently seen a doctor than men. When it comes to a present need not being met, it's hard to find another example of such a large population segment being so drastically underserved which is why I'm so excited about the work my guests today are doing to redress that disparity. JC Rivero and Leah Sharif are the co-founders of Circle, a brand new AI data startup working to bridge the women's healthcare gap and create a more equitable, personalized future for medical science. Their first target is helping doctors and patients in the fertility field to make more informed decisions. But as you'll hear, the possibilities for Circle's biomedical graph technology have huge implications for the entire healthcare ecosystem. 
JC is a tech wizard and veteran entrepreneur with three successful company exits and over 100 patents to his name in signal processing and machine learning, while Leah is an expert in technology communications, marketing, and business strategy, most recently as the VP of Marketing and Head of Brand at Qualcomm. It was my absolute pleasure to have them both on the show to share their stories and the hugely important work they're doing. So let's jump into the conversation. Good to see you guys. Thanks for doing this. We're super excited to have you both. Thank you for having us here, Connor. Highly appreciated. Yes, thank you for having us. Awesome. And JC, I mean, so before we get to talk about Circle, I just want to get a sense for folks of where you all come from and, and the, the story that gets you to where you are. So JC, let's start at, at your beginning. What was it like growing up in Barcelona? Well, Barcelona is a wonderful city. It's one of my favorites in the world, yes. <laughs> I live in California. It's not bad here either, but I was privileged to have uh, the opportunity to grow up in Barcelona. But my parents are original from the north of Spain. They moved from the countryside to trying to grow. So I, I was kind of middle class, not any fancy. My mom was diagnosed with schizophrenia. Uh, later on, was moved to bipolar disorder. And my my father was always working in spending time outside of, of home traveling and, and so on because he, he was building factories. So it was different than others, but uh, at the end, uh, we cannot complain. Me and my sister and my brother, we are super lucky that we've been able to grow up with a family that loves us, but uh, it was kind of different. Were you always interested in technology? Were you a computer whiz as a kid? So I'm, I'm the classical guy that was really, really good on math. I had good grades. It was easy at school. So I had computers early on, like everyone else, for curiosity, and I was doing things, but you know, building games was kind of borrowing. So it was not until I was at college that I was to start dealing with very complex problems, especially on the communication, signal processing, algorithms, very early on on what will be considered now machine learning. That's when something that kind of clicked. But it was not until I was discovering this kind of combination between math, signal processing, algorithms that I was kind of, okay, I, this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. Was there a moment, a class, uh, a project that, stands out as when you realized this was something that you wanted to pursue in a career? Early on, on the first years, when I was had to do all the computer science in terms of coding, I was doing them, but it was very boring. But then I started doing what is called signal processing and communications. So it was designing how to transmit gigabits. It was very complex math. I just falling off. And then on my master, everybody was kind of selecting the easy job. At that time, we're talking about the 90s. So GPS, uh, GPS was early on, and it was the kind of the public GPS with low resolution, and it was the military with a high resolution, very accurate. And the, but the military was kind of private, only for the right. military, not for public service. So even in, in Europe, we were starting thinking to deploy the, the satellites for Galileo. And my project was basically to hack using the public signal to have enough resolution to improve the military ones using a complex theorem from China and combined numbers and, you know, something very crazy. I was very strange in that sense. Everybody else was just doing databases, coding, and doing software for websites. And I was just hacking signals to get <laughs> higher resolution from the DSP. Leah, this sounds maybe not so much like your college experience. <laughs> what did you study in college? 
Well, I'll step back a bit even before college because I kind of have several different degrees and my first one started very early on. So I come from the former Soviet Union, from the country called Azerbaijan, a different system, obviously very authoritarian and challenging in many ways. And I probably was the last generation of Soviets who grew up right before the collapse of the Berlin Wall. So I left two years prior to that, or a year actually. But the positive sides of that system was that we had access to the most amazing education system. And my family encouraged that very much. My father was a professor of Middle Eastern Affairs. My mother was a journalist working in TASS. Um, that was an agency in the Soviet yeah. Union. In any case, I fell in love with with dance and education, obviously, but dance in particular very early on and uh, had an opportunity to be accepted into the Soviet ballet school. And so I was trained in ballet professionally for nine years, six days a week, many hours a day. And so my first degree was as a professional ballerina. So I was accepted uh, into a dance company. I toured and performed and gained a lot of uh, benefits from being trained in dance that ultimately resulted in helping me become who I was over the course of my life. So no, I never dreamt to be in business. I dreamt to be in dance. And so when right. I immigrated to the United States, I went back to school. I went to UCSD in San Diego. I got my degree in psychology while continuing to dance and teach dance. And I performed for some years as well while in school. And I think there are a lot of parallels of how dance helped me bring my agility into business. That mindset kind of comes up with fresh approaches and solving for complex problems. So technology was something I leaned into very early on after I moved to the United States because I'm ultimately considering myself someone who really cares about improving human condition. And I thought that technology can do that. And so I've worked in technology my whole career, I worked in small companies, larger companies, mid-sized companies, and then ultimately landed with Qualcomm, which is the largest technology communication semiconductor company that invented technology inside your smartphones. I mean, I think there is a commonality in this passion to solve complex problems, right? <laughs> Clearly, JC, you started tackling complex problems in your thesis in, in university, but walk us from there to the next few chapters of your professional career where you continue that trend of seeking out and solving complex problems. Yeah, so definitely I didn't want to stay at the university doing research because something inside of me pushed me for, for the business, I guess. I had the opportunity to stay and doing the PhD, but when I built all of that technology and we didn't even do that, then I said, why we don't even build a company to do a better GPX? And they told me, no, we don't do those things at, at the university. So that's where... Okay, I need to leave. So they were thinking me to go and land on one of those big, big space companies at that time. Okay, but and it was a very small startup in Spain that were doing semiconductors. It was fifty thousand euros of funding. Okay, it was crazy for semiconductors. You need millions of dollars. Right. And I had the opportunity to go to a big company, a big salary, and then it was that company with unclear future and. My parents said, you are going to the big company. I said, no, I'm going to the, the, the small one. <laughs> You're crazy. They said, yeah, but you know, they are interested in me because they look to my thesis, my work on, on that modulation system complex. I said, we need that for the system we want to build here. So that's why I get there. It was small. I was 23 years old. I think it was super young. And 
and I become the CTO of engineering. We ran a team of 17. We built a very complex technology. It was good. It was working. At the end, that company was acquired by Marvel. And then I met there a few others. We started another company on semiconductors, and that company was acquired by Broadcom. So I'd done reasonably well. At that time, I already had a lot of patents. Good exit. You are young. You are in the peak money. But my father, that was a reference for me. So you know, you need to understand he was selling a lot, but the, the few time that spent with me was very important. It meant a lot to me. We lost because it was an error on a ear room or a hospital just right after I closed the deal with Broadcom. So that was kind of devastated. And I've been dealing with the limitations of healthcare my whole life. So that's where I switched and I decided, okay, we need to do something. It was very clear that data has to transform healthcare. And so I started working on self-learning AI, machine learning. This is around 2012, 2011. And it's way earlier than OpenAI and everybody. So because supervised sure. learning was not going to solve the problems. But the idea was instead of LLMs, text-to-text, was to create graphs, high-quality graphs. So we built that company. We started with media, working with all the media big guys in the US, the financial institution. And then at the end of 2020, Apple came. They bought the company. So I stayed of staying in Apple, I decided that I wanted to fulfill my my mission. But I, I think you get the journey. Instead of picking the easy path, <laughs> I didn't stay in Broadcom. Oh, Broadcom was a great contract. I didn't stay in Apple. I didn't took the easy project. I always go for the most difficult project to do something what a lot of people told me it was impossible. You tell me that's impossible, I go in. That, that seems like a repeated theme, right? For entrepreneurs in general, you'll hear this. like there's There's the easy path. And then there's the path that I chose. That's <laughs> a very common theme. Well, yeah, I'm, I'm curious, as you kind of think back at all the roles that got you to, to today before the creation of Circle, what kinds of experiences from managing marketing and brand strategy for a big company like Qualcomm kind of prepared you to step into a, a founder role? What, what do you look back on and think of as the key educational and, and formative moments of your career leading up to today? Yeah, if I took my career in chapters, I worked first at the very small companies in startup environments. And so that's where I learned how to really address complex problems for technology. So I was always a tech marketer, essentially uh, focusing on um, problem solving through technologies. Initially, it was semiconductors and wireless industry and understanding how to really think about those challenges at the business level. I worked also at the mid-sized company as a marketer. I helped take the company through a successful acquisition uh, by Broadcom, and I learned sort of how to address those areas of growth and, and building. I, I consider myself certainly a builder, whether it's you build in, 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 in new life in a new country or you build a business or uh, high-performing teams. So then I landed in agency world on the service side, understanding how to service these companies. I was somebody who actually created marketing strategies and programs to drive growth for businesses. And eventually, I wanted to really have an impact in a larger brand. And Qualcomm has tremendous amount of complexities that it's solving for in mobile and wireless industries. And when I landed there, they were expanding from a single set of customers within the smartphone ecosystem to a broader set of industries. And so I spent 11 years helping develop programs and marketings 
across global markets, both on the consumer side, we had a consumer brand, we had a B2B brand, which was Qualcomm itself, but also touched very difficult challenges that the company has gone through. All of those experiences together and working with a variety of leaders and teams and brilliant people and engineers prepared me to kind of come back to my roots, which is entrepreneurial and agility. And that's what startups have uh, in common with me, is ability to build and move fast, be agile. And that's kind of brought me to meeting JC. So JC, you have this moment where you have the sale of the, the last company to Apple. You know you want to get back into the game. You feel a passion, a, a mission. Where did the original idea for Circle come from? Give us the moment or where you were convinced that the idea had legs that this was something that you were going to pursue yeah so as i said for the last you know more than 10 years i've been working on this self-learning i had to build high quality graph that can transform all data of first care so that's kind of my mission to really understand the genetics of it and explain why i don't want my kids to i need to make sure that they don't have what my mom has and if they have it i want to find a, a solution for them but you know, when Apple bought, I, I believe that the technology was not there. So I was going to go back to robots to keep building the technology until that was ready. But someone introduced me to Irene Cuevas. He runs an IVF lab in a, a hospital in Valencia, one of the biggest hospitals in Spain. She's very successful research on in vitro fertilization. And she was asking me, she had like five years of research data to select embryos that are in an incubator with cameras. She's the hospital is a hospital of a university hospital, so she had students that help her to manually annotate. But that doesn't work for all the other clinics and hospitals. Not scalable. <laughs> Not scalable. So she was asking me just, can you automate that using computer vision? And I said, you know what, let's fold the robots part. We'll go back there later. Let's do this because I think this is important. And we built it. By mid-21, it was already working at her hospital. We did it in a few months. She was very impressed. But... Doing that, I realized that first, this is something across, you know, everybody. It's impacting everybody. Now people go to college, enjoy life. And then instead of having babies in your 20s, you have your babies in your 30s. And the successful rates are not there. So there is a massive room for improvement. And in order to solve it, I realized that it was not just in this selection. We need to connect the hormone stimulation for egg retrieval in this direction with the hormone stimulation for the transfer with the genetic. You have to close the loop. And that was number one. I think it was very in line to what I wanted to build, high-quality graphs to use real-world data, real-world evidence to improve healthcare. Second, that I didn't know. Woman health has been massively underserved, less than 2% of the overall investment. Oncology aside goes to woman health. So women have been out of any medical study uh, until 1993. So no data. So if, if you have under-researched, underfunded, the, the conclusion is not to be underserved. There are more than 700 diseases that women have, have like four and a half years until they have the right diagnosis. So we're talking about half of the population. And, and fertility, it, it collects a lot of data that helps not just on fertility, it helps to, you know, a lot of those 700 diseases that are important. It collects data from women on their late 20s to early 40s, talking about ovarian aging that is important for ovarian cancer. So half of the population, big problem, huge impact. I thought that this is the best path for us to transform healthcare using yeah. data. And, and we are starting for half of the population that I was shocked that is so underserved and it was such a big opportunity. I want to hear more about that moment because it, at what point did you realize, wait a second, how is there this giant data gap between 
the data related to men's health and women's health. I mean, you were shocked to find out. Like, was it just step by step? Wait a second, you don't have that. We're not collecting that. We don't do that. Or was it all at once? Or how did that process unfold? I'm an engineering scientific person, data driven, and I wanted to really solve the IVF. So I started looking at the hormone stimulation protein transfer, the genetics, and I started realizing that there is very little data on women. Like, where's the data, guys? <laughs> Send me the data. What do you mean you don't what have is, any data? <laughs> what is the problem here? What is the problem? And then I realized that until 1993, it was not something in the U.S. Congress that was making mandatory that all these research studies include women. Before, they were non-mandatory and they were excluded because all these hormones and the reproductive system of the woman were messing up with the results. And I said, okay, it's messing up because they are different. So if you don't collect that data, you, you, you don't know about them. Yeah. We're talking about half of the population. It's yeah. not it's not just one underserved kind of niche market. It was that, okay, this is also a massive business opportunity. And, and, and to be honest, looking at my daughter, and if I don't do anything, how different I will be versus the rest of people that are ignoring that product. I realized that to have that solve it, we need to go in that path. Yeah. That was it. That was one of the easier decisions of my life. It's amazing when it all comes together in the right way. And I mean, a perfect segue, Leah, to when did you learn about Circle? Uh, what was your first impression of JC? What got you excited to, to join the team? Yeah, so I kind of, during COVID, as a lot of us, we've been searching for kind of other solutions in our lives. And I always wanted to go back to school. So I decided to take a sabbatical from corporate world after many, many, many years of a bit of a burnout. So I went back to get my master's in interior architecture back to the creative field where I come from, yeah. but also technical. I mean, architecture is extremely technical. And so I dove into drafting and drawing and sketching and creating. But at that same time, a friend of mine and also a former colleague who knew me well, he's also an investor in Circle. We had lunch and he, he said, so what are you up to? And I said, you know, I'm doing school right now, taking a little break. He says, are you interested in a really great technology company that's just being developed? They may need some help and the skill set that you have. I said, sure. I already started to miss work and being a part of something that can grow and be developed. So I met JC and my first impression of him was I was really encouraged by his humanity. Not a lot of people have that sort of human side that drives their desire to improve human condition. That's what we have in common. And I also was ready to move into a different sort of purposeful way that technology can solve for equity on equitable issues in the world. And I also have big passion for advancement of women and just underrepresented populations. And healthcare is really at the core of that. And so there was a lot of alignment in terms of what they were building. So they needed help creating a stronger value proposition in terms of articulating it. And that's what I do well. So this was a great opportunity for me to step in. Initially, it was an advisory role. And then JC asked me to step in in more active role. I joined as a co-founder and then eventually became a board member. And so now I'm actively doing uh, more of a board work for Circle and supporting the team in that capacity. And as someone who thought through that value proposition, how would you frame the elevator pitch for Circle you know, to the layperson today? In the simplest terms, it's an AI technology company with the mission to advance women's healthcare with the power of data. 
So we talked about the lack of data. We talked about the massive gap in women's healthcare. It unlocks the value of data at scale with AI. It uses AI for good to drive better health outcomes and also provide women and doctors with insights to make better health decisions. And JC, like, what does that product look like for medical professionals, for patients? What does the product look and feel like? Can you talk us through that for a second? Yes. So first, we get all their data from uh, electronic medical records or lab testing reports or spreadsheets, anything. So we put all of that in this graph. And then the graph has different, we call dashboard now, but you can imagine that in the future could be just you interacting, asking questions, okay? And sure. So you, you have a lot of information. So the way that they are using it, for example, on, on the clinics side, okay? So when you have a new patient, the medical record, the history of the patient, is taken, is projected into that graph that you can imagine like a constellation of points. And you look at the points that are near to that new patient, and those points are other patients. And the doctors can see what it was working for those patients and it was not working. So if you are trying to maximize the egg retrieval, you can see what are the protocols that were getting maximum number of egg retrieval. You can also look at, okay, from those different protocols, which is the one that translates into a higher pregnancy rate. So it helps the doctor to understand, okay, we need to select what is the best hormone stimulation protocol for that woman. And for similar women in the past, this is what it was working. Okay, so and it's all based on the previous patients. It's just giving them access to what was working before. And that is kind of the first step into personalization because the idea is you can now, not just look at the medical records, but look at the genetics and really understand what is working right. or not. So the final goal here is first provide ultra-personalized care for everybody. Because what it works for you, maybe not that work for me. We all have genetics that are different, our epigenomics, so our environment, yours and mine is different. So we need to really understand what works for everybody. So this is kind of the first version, but the idea is going to personalize medicine. The same with the embryo selection. So we characterize all the embryos, we put them into the graph, we look at the similar embryos in terms of kinetics, morphology, genetics, and so on, and we help the doctors to assess. Based on the previous one, those are the similar one. Look at the one that produced a successful pregnancy and a baby. So you, you kind of help them in every decision that they have to do in the journey of the patients, looking at the previous data, and it's not a black box, it's not a classifier, so there is no skew. And doctors love it because the machine is not telling them what to do. The machine is just showing them the data and they can make the decision. Yeah. That's kind of on the clinical side. Then you have the same concept of real data, real evidence, but on the research. When they have to do papers and they need to look at, at all the data, now they have to do data mining manually with spreadsheets. We can help them. It's a speed up. They can make better papers, more complex. That translate into better research, better research for new pharma, for new drugs. It's a massive opportunity. So it helps on the short term because we give them tools for the clinics, but also it helps on the medium long term. So I think it's the future. Your body, my body has 37 trillion different cells. Okay. So if we want to understand genetics and we want to understand how our health works, we have to collect enough data to decode all of that. So we're in this long-term journey. Our mission is Let's collect enough data so we can really, really understand how our body works. That is how the path moving forward. That's how we can really, really solve the biggest problem on the health. I mean, you articulated this vision in the past of medicine 1.0, medicine 2.0, moving towards medicine 3.0. It feels like this is that journey. 
Yes, because 1.0 is everything before the microscope. And the, I think it was when we have our first antibiotics and, and all of that, the lifespan of all of us has improved. But I think that's kind of microscope, antibiotics, everything that was on the previous century is what I call uh, medicine 2.0. Uh, a massive improvement. We move our lifespan is significant, but we reach the point where I think we do as much as we can with microscope. I think we have been a lot. I think all the CSPR, all of these genetic mRNA, all of that is amazing. But combining that biology with what we know, data and machine learning and so on, I think we are opening a new opportunity like the computer from the 80s that is going to transform healthcare to personalize medicine in a significant way. So I'm really looking forward for the next five to 10 years. I think we are going to see a massive improvement in the field, yes. And I think it's really powerful that you're taking this step in the position of advancing into medicine 3.0 in a way that is unlike previous generations of data by collecting and analyzing the data of, of a population that was completely ignored in the data set being women. And I'm curious, you know, it does not go unnoticed that you were a man focused on making sure that we capture and bring the data of women into the medical and healthcare industry. What do you see as the role for men to address systemic inequities in healthcare? Wow, that's an important question. So I think we have a responsibility because we have wives, daughters, and moms, okay? So we are not isolated or what? But also, we cannot be in a position that we think that we are so smart that we can only build that solution. I think I work on this, but I'm surrounded with a wonderful group of people. Leah is one of them. And I, I think it's the time also for women to lead on that. Okay, So we need to be part. I'm contributing with what I know, that is data and algorithms and so on. But this is going to be led by women. We have a board of directors with poor women. We're bringing investors women. And this is going to be a company led by women that it is going to transform women health. And and I'm happy for that. I don't think it's we create the problem and we are going to solve the problem. I think, you know, we are going to be part of the solution, but definitely, you know, the women are going to be a significant contributor, leaders, and it should be that way. That's my opinion. Leah, give us your take on how do we better address systemic inequity in healthcare? I think JC touched on some of these uh, data points earlier. We know that women have been excluded from the advancement of medicine overall until 1993. They weren't included in any research. And even until 2016, that the biomedical research included primarily male animals. So think about that. So if that means women do not receive treatments, diagnosis, and care that they deserve simply because of lack of information. But the second component is a lack of funding. So there's an inclusion problem and then there's a funding problem. And so currently only 1% of healthcare research and innovation in, is invested in female specific conditions. And then uh, just most recently, McKinsey and company has released a report around the gap in women's healthcare. And uh, what really struck me is that women spend 20% of their lives in poor health than men. So that creates massive systemic inequity and historic underrepresentation. So what does that mean? That means that there's a massive opportunity for men, for women, for awareness to grow around this topic. And so even just the release of this report by McKinsey indicates that there's interest, understanding that this is happening. It's very current. 
Uh, the world is waking up to it, and I think it is job both women and the men. In case of GC, he's a brilliant technologist, and like I said earlier, he's a humanist. He really cares about improving human condition. In this case, he identified an issue when he was working with Irene around fertility and reproductive health for women, but then we identified a core problem, that there's a broader inequity. So how do we address it? I think it's a coalition of companies, coalition of investors, coalition of people that are coming into this space right now. Circle is one of the examples of great investments that are really transforming healthcare with technology such as AI in a way that can do it at scale and quickly. I'm going to complement our response with Sotia a little bit more. You know that there are a lot of people working now on aging, you know, people interested on aging, and this is becoming a hot topic. Yeah. Okay. So in order to understand all of that, and order to really move the needle on, on the healthcare in a significant way, women are going to be in a much better position. You need to understand fertility is a place where those women are going and they have multiple visits, multiple checkpoints. They are getting blood tests, hormone tests, ultrasounds. They, you have the embryo. It's a lot of data for a few cells like the embryo that are really related to genetics, ovarian aging. It's super important to understand menopause and so on, but it's all related to aging. It's all related to the genetics. With all of that data, you will be able to understand those things faster. They will have a big step forward in their health because all of that data is going to help them. I'm curious. I mean, you, you had a really huge hit with your launch and you guys were really leading the charge with impactful partners and investors right off the bat. I'm curious how those relationships developed and kind of how you've helped effectively reimagine an ecosystem and where you think that goes from here, kind of this this network of, of partners and investors who are in this space, who are trying to collectively work on various angles to address the systemic inequality around the data side of things. You know, how has that taken shape and where is that going? We are really lucky. Okay. So as I explained this problem, I think we feel part of the problem. So when I talk to the fact that I had already built two startups, had two exits and so on, I, I managed to have a good network, lucky with all my friends. Okay, So all of those investors came from that network. So that's how I met Leah. So basically all the investors are kind of connected to each other. I'm super honored for all of them. They step in, they believe in the mission. They are doing this because they understand. And we have a big number of women investing as a business angel in the company. I could not be more proud, very helpful, hands-on. But also all the men, all the community, they see the problem, they want to solve it. As I say, we all have mom, wives, or spouses, or daughters, okay? I see a lot of people taking that responsibility seriously and contributing and making a huge effort to make a difference. So I have to say I'm super thankful for all the investors because healthcare is a very difficult uh, market. Most of people you make an investment, <laughs> it's hard to get return. It's very difficult. It's hard. It's it's not an easy market for investment. And they are committed. They are in for this mission. They are in to transform and they are in to improve on woman health. I will just add to that, that in terms of the ecosystem and uh, response from the customer base, I, I think we have identified the important inflection point in what is required in the healthcare system, and it's particularly starting with clinics and labs and the fertility space. And for them, the data at scale and at speed can quantify the problem and measure the impact of the potential solutions previously just impossible. And so I think that 
like at any in any technology that has a market fit and any business that has the right market fit i think what circle is building is really meeting a tremendous need and it's filling the gap and so i think the response to this has been very positive because the clinics and the customers are quickly seeing results and return on their investment i want to take that to kind of the social level because i think you know Lee, I'm curious, if you, if you close your eyes and think about Circle's potential ability to do good in the world, like what is the world that you picture, that you envision, what does that world look like in X number of years? Like, How can you describe the, the social positive impact that you're kind of on the precipice of introducing and growing? Well, I think that your podcast really focuses a lot on sustainability and equity, which I really love. In, in our case, I suspect that narrowing the gap for women would lead to fewer early deaths, fewer health conditions for women. And so if women spend 25% more in poor health, reversing that and shifting that will, will allow for more access, more equitable lives, and ultimately better health. For women. And so that will increase productivity, lifespan for society, and what women can contribute back. Yeah. So that's the first step. But I think also that kind of leads back to that human sustainability concept. And so, again, it's about access, it's about democratizing healthcare, but also lowering the cost and providing data and information for better health decision outcomes. And I think underserved populations, if they have access to the graph, if they have access to the data that uh, JC has talked about, both on genetic side, on medical side, presented in a way that helps doctors make quicker, more informed decisions, it's ultimately going to improve lives. And that's the world I'd like to see five years, 10 years from now. Sustainable yeah. world with human sustainability and better health for a longer time. Yeah, that's a nice picture. As we kind of start to wrap up, JC, you're a technologist living you know, at the vanguard. Any other breakthroughs that you're seeing out there in the world that you're pretty excited about because you think they could also change the world? Well, obviously, machine learning is going to change the world. I'm more or on the side that I hope we work more on the uh, climate change. Okay, so when I was born, I, I had a world that it was wonderful. I'm trying to leave something as wonderful, at least, or even not better than what I received uh, when I was born to my kids. Okay, so I think we have a responsibility to make sure that that happens. So all the technologies that are in that direction very early on, you know, uh, trying to work with the carbon and the atmosphere. I think that technology is very encouraging. Obviously, machine learning is it's going to transform biology. Okay, so the, the big, yeah. big thing is uh, on the biology side. Yeah, you can use machine learning to have chatbots and, and interact, and, and you will see a lot of increment of productivity. But I think the biggest revolution is going to be on, on the biology. We are going to expand our lives. I hope that we do it with equity. If we allow that a woman can choose when she wants to have uh, her family and it doesn't need to choose between family or work. If we can contribute so they can make their own decisions free, I think that's how we can move forward. Obviously, we all want to increase, uh, you know, aging and all the stuff, but I think we need to start working to make sure that we treat everybody equally. And when, when we call about equity, it means not just the salaries, but also, you know, allowing them to be working and building their careers with have talent to choose. So that's where I'm super happy on yeah. mixing machine learning with biology. I think that's going to be the biggest revolution of our times in by far. Yeah. 
But yeah, what about on your end? Anything that you're reading, podcast listening to, things you're seeing or watching that really excite you that you think folks should be tapping into and paying attention to? Yeah, I think that the biggest advancement is really using AI for good. There's a lot of buzz about negative implications yeah. of AI, but JC touched the machine learning. I have been invited to be a judge on the innovation panel for innovation awards in UC San Diego for startups. And as I was reading the submissions for those awards, what excited me the most is, again, I saw tremendous submissions and ideas around advancement of cardiac health using AI, finding locations in the body that are non-invasive at, at much cheaper costs using AI. And so the ideas there are really about advancing various parts of human health and human condition. And I'm really excited about what AI can do for healthcare. Yeah, there's a last week, 60 Minutes had a story on the potential for micro-ultrasound interventions to try to start treating Alzheimer's. Like, it's just, we're on the precipice of such cool stuff. I really, I'm with you. Well, let's wrap up with, with one easy question, JC. Give us kind of anything you want to plug, the URLs, sites where, where folks can learn more, products that you want folks to go read about. Where should people go if they want to learn more and follow Circle and what you guys are up to? Yeah, thank you, Connor. So I, I hope at the end of this podcast, people had an idea that what we are trying is to transform all the data that is not being used today in the healthcare to improve healthcare for everybody. So if anyone has, you know, common interest or wants to get into more details, especially anything related to uh, woman health and specific conditions, not just fertility, PCOS, endometriosis, uh, cancer, uh, ovarian cancer, or, or menopause, we are really interested in all of those areas. Uh, feel free to connect in uh, our website, circle.ii, and, you know, go to the contact section. Those emails go directly to me, so <laughs> I will be the person responding. That's a startup. And I will be happy to follow up with anyone that shares or has any question on, on, on that topic. Amazing. And we'll be sure to put all of the links into the show notes. And um, thank you guys so much. It's been a lot of fun. I'm really excited about the promise of Circle and what you guys are up to. So thanks for taking the time to talk to us today. My thanks to JC and Leah for taking the time to join us on the show today. I'm grateful to them for bringing awareness to this kind of crazy issue of data inequality in women's healthcare. And while it can be pretty disconcerting to be confronted with the extent of a problem like this, I find myself walking away from the conversation filled with optimism and hope because of the work they're doing. I'm also incredibly excited for their vision of medicine 3.0 and the role that AI technology can play in improving healthcare outcomes. If you'd like to learn more about Circle and their technology, follow news about the company or explore opportunities to join their team, you can check them out on their website, circle.ai. That's C-E-R-C-L-E dot A-I. As JC mentioned, if you have any specific questions or experiences in women's healthcare that you'd like to share with them, you can email info at circle.ai. Those emails will end up going directly to him. You can also connect with Circle, JC, and Leah on LinkedIn. We'll have all the links for you in the show notes. If you have any questions, comments, or ideas sparked by today's conversation, or if you've got a great idea for a future conversation, you can email us at cic at consensus-digital.com. That's cic at consensus-digital.com. Drop us a line. We'd love to hear your thoughts on this week's show. You can also always connect with me directly on LinkedIn or threads at ckgone. That's at C-K-G-O-N-E. And as always, if you like the show, please give us a follow, a like, or leave a review wherever you listen. It helps us to grow our reach and continue bringing you more awesome conversations with the business leaders that you want to hear from. 
Thanks, everyone. We'll see you next week with a brand new conversation. Consensus in Conversation is hosted and executive produced by me, Connor Gaughan. The episode was produced by Will Gatchell and Jeff Rock with editing from the good folks at Reasonable Volume. Special thanks to the Consensus team, including creative director Kate Tucker, Greg Hergel on research, and Patrick Gallagher on strategy. Consensus in Conversation can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you listen. Consensus in Conversation is a podcast by Consensus Digital Media, produced in association with Reasonable Volume.